Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the home of common sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. We have reached the end of another week, ladies and gentlemen. And once again, there are more questions than answers. Yesterday, we wondered what the government was up to. Today, I think that picture is becoming clearer. The booster campaign is fully up and running. The propaganda is out there, ladies and gentlemen. This morning, we are greeted by stories of how more people can get now uh, the booster faster. Uh, They don't have to wait until they've been six months since the last one. And, of course, they've now got stories that say the new Pfizer vaccine offers nearly 100% protection from COVID. I think we've heard that before, haven't we? Pull the other one, guys. Do you actually think my head zips up the back? I seem to remember when we were told to take one vaccine that that wasn't going to be enough. And then they said, you've got to take two vaccines because that will give you full protection. Now they're saying it doesn't give you full protection. In fact, it doesn't really give you any protection at all. You can still get COVID. It just won't be so bad. But now, even though you can still get COVID, but it just won't be so bad, you need to get a third one, a booster indeed. And will that now become the fully vaccinated scenario? So when people say, are you fully vaccinated? You've had two jabs and you're just about to get on a plane and you say, yes, absolutely. Here's my two jabs. They go, aha, you haven't had three. You can't go. It's not good, is it? Meanwhile, doctors are busy telling us they want to go on strike. Why? Because the government is making them actually see patients face to face and do their jobs. It would be hilarious if it wasn't so ridiculous. They also don't want us to be able to rate them for customer satisfaction. Well, why not? Every time I do anything now, I get a little survey afterwards saying, how did we do? You know, whether you're dealing with a phone company, whether you're dealing with a power company, whether you're dealing with some kind of um, transportation company, whether you're dealing with anyone at all, they always ask you, how are we doing? So they can rate themselves. Well, doctors apparently don't want to do that. No, 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 that's no good, is it? Because actually they're higher and above us. We shouldn't be able to question what they do. Uh, They're also not too keen on being exposed for how much money they make from private practice. I wonder why they're suddenly so shy. They don't want to meet us. They don't want to talk to us. They don't want to be rated by us. And they don't want us to know how much money they make by not seeing us. Mm, I smell a bit of a rat there. God bless the BMA. Uh, As somebody said earlier this week, They should be forced to put the word union because they are just as bad as the National Union of Mine Workers, in my view, the BMA. You know, they might as well have Arthur Scargill leading them. 0344 499 1000. Down tools, lads. Get out of them surgical gowns. It's time for a strike. It's time to take on the Tory scum. Sorry, sorry. We're all doctors, yeah, we don't talk like that. No, absolutely not. This morning we'll be catching up with Reform UK leader Richard Tice. He'll give us his view on the events of the week, the nonsensical news that not one member of the Cabinet, right, has had a heat pump installed, and the latest from the office of Sadiq Khan in London, who is now offering grants of £25,000, that's right, £25,000 of your money and my money, for people who want to decolonise the name of their street. Hmm? Yeah, that's right. Whatever next, we're also joined by Marc Francois MP, who is incensed at the news this week, as I am, that a terminally ill former soldier who was being prosecuted for a shooting incident in the 1970s actually died on Monday as a result of the proceedings. Absolute disgrace. Mike Yardley's also here. He's a bit of an expert on guns. He's going to be telling us how a prop gun could have been wrongfully loaded with live ammunition as we try to find out just how actor Alec Baldwin could have fired the deadly blast that resulted in the death of a woman on the set of a new movie. 0344 499 
1000. Simon Clark's here as well. He'll give us the latest on the COVID figures. Uh, and while the trend this week is that more people are testing positive, fewer of them are being hospitalised and fewer still are actually dying. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we've got plenty to do today because there's an awful lot to catch up on. And I'm delighted to say it's time to speak to Richard Tice, leader of Reform UK, talk radio presenter, of course, as well. Although I don't think he's on this Sunday. Richard, a very good morning to you. A very good morning to you, Mike. Thank and you. Uh, in another extraordinary week, isn't it? Well, quite. I mean, I don't quite know where to begin. But let's begin with the question I had yesterday for everybody, which, which I think we kind of got towards an answer on, which is, what on earth are they up to? They, of course, being the government. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, it's hard to know where to begin. It really is. But I think that the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the cost of their uh, net zero program, which, which I call net stupid, mm. and, and it's becoming ever more apparent that it is incredibly stupid. Uh, the cost of that is just going through the roof. And uh, it actually, the, the Daily Mail did a very good expose on the, the, the huge cost and the inefficiency of these heat pumps, which seems to be the sort of the central strategy of the government in terms of uh, reducing emissions, uh, that we're all going to have to get rid of our perfectly decent boilers uh, and replace them with a piece of kit that is noisy, uh, that is expensive, uh, that takes a huge amount of space. Oh, and by the way, doesn't actually do the job that it was designed to do, which is to provide hot water and uh, and to heat your radiators to the same sort of temperature as a boiler does. Right. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And as you just said in your intro, uh, you could always tell with this government because um, they're very good at sort of talking the talk. Huh. But you then find out that none of them have actually uh, implemented <laughs> by way of leadership up front no. any of the measures that they're trying to impose upon the rest of the poor unsuspecting public. Yeah. I mean, it's like somebody coming to your house, Richard, it seems to me, uh, with a low loader, and on the back of the low loader uh, is a car, which is worse than the one you've already got, um, which doesn't have as much room in it as the one you've got for your children and your dogs and your luggage and everything else, which doesn't run as well, uh, which is older and less efficient, uh, but it's more expensive. And they, they give you that car, make you pay them a load of money, and then take the nice car away. I mean, exactly right. And I think that this, uh, as, as more and more people realise what the government's uh, planning to do to force on, on everybody, uh, I think that uh, the fury will grow. And my simple slogan here, Mike, is save our boiler. Yeah, absolutely. Save our boiler. I mean, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there's a reason why the vast, vast majority, uh, I think it's sort of well over 90% of homes uh, have boilers, and that's because uh, gas uh, is, is a perfectly sensible fossil fuel. Uh, it works. Boilers work. They're reliable. The heat they produce works is, is reliable. And I just find it extraordinary that, you know, we've got literally, we've got over 50 years' worth of cheap, reliable, accessible, what I call golden shale gas, that belongs to all of us and is literally under the feet of those of us, you know, anyone who's in the north of England. Uh, and yet we're leaving that there. Um, instead, we're going to, uh, we're either going to buy expensive gas from the likes of Putin or uh, people in the Middle East uh, or, or 
rely on buying electricity from, from France if we're a bit short, if the wind hasn't blown off uh, off the coast of right. the UK. I mean, it's, it's complete madness, this whole strategy. You know, we all want to reduce emissions and have cleaner air. That's fine. But we can achieve that in different ways. Yeah, but we've already uh, have government. reduced emissions, Richard, and we do have cleaner air. I mean, you know, um, I'm old enough to remember when the air in London was pretty bad, when people did have coal-fired, uh, you know, fireplaces, uh, and they burned coal, which wasn't even smokeless, and you'd walk out into the street and you could barely see the hand in front of your face. You know, I mean, to complain that we haven't done anything and, well, we haven't done enough is nonsensical. The cars now that we drive around in the new cars are absolutely incredibly clean. You know, we're going to talk about Sadiq Khan in a little while. Do you know he's extending, uh, I think, at the end of this week, Week, the uh, ULES zone out to the north and south circular and he's looking to extend it out to the M25 which means anyone who's coming in from the M25 not even going into central London is going to have to pay a ludicrous amount of money to go to work and do their job uh, it's, 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 it's absolutely madness and yeah, we have made great progress reducing emissions we're actually a world leader we've reduced uh, our emissions by over 40 percent well over 40 percent in the last 30 years and there's, and there's more sensible progress we can make but it's got to be affordable and it's got to be street strategic. And what we mustn't do is sort of virtue signal hair shirts, uh, our whole economy and uh, essentially all of our lives uh, in the knowledge that other countries like China and India and Russia are literally looking at us laughing, thinking there they go, they're those suckers. Uh, you know, we're just going to carry on as we were, keep building our coal-fired power stations. Right. And that's, so, and that's, and that's let's, the... let's remember, we, we represent about 1% of all global emissions, whereas the likes of China represents almost 30% of mm. all emissions. Right. And they're still building coal-fired power stations. Uh, and, 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 you know, we are, in, in a sense, um, we seem quite happy uh, to increase the cost of our energy uh, to huge amounts. Um, which actually, in global emission terms, will make not the blindest bit of difference. I mean, it really is. It's another definition of madness. Well, it is. And also their logic is all over the place, Richard, because what we're told by this government is that the reason electricity and gas prices have reached peaks in the past few weeks and months is because we're not doing it green enough. And it's actually the complete opposite of that. One of the reasons that they're so high is because we are over-greening our supplies. Well, that, that's right. And, and so what you're seeing is the uh, because the government has basically forced uh, all of the cost of building, whether it's wind turbines, whether it's solar panels, uh, the forcing all of that cost into the, the private sector who want to make sort of 15% return on their money, um, that actually we're having to pay a huge renewable subsidy uh, in order to get that green energy. Right. And it's it, I mean, you know, just financially, it's, it's utter lunacy. And, of course, it's, it's, you know, decent, ordinary British families up and down the country who are having to pay hugely increased bills, and people are literally seeing them around on the doorstep as we speak, in order to, uh, to subsidise the profits of, uh, of those developers, of those investors in, in green energy. By the way, uh, the majority of which appear to be Overseas private equity groups, overseas investors, sovereign wealth funds. See that again? It's just another example of our money going overseas to prop up profits of overseas investors, uh, and and that money obviously never coming back again. 
Yes, and that is unfortunately the main focus, of course, of this government's business most of this week until, of course, um, the bizarre press conference and the media briefing that Sajid Javid gave out uh, on Wednesday, in which uh, I sat watching thinking... When's he going to say something that's actually newsworthy? Because he didn't say anything that was at all newsworthy. And all it turned into was a sort of a massive promotion for getting the third booster jab. Well, as we know, uh, with this whole crisis, as uh, with regard to COVID, so often the government makes uh, and continues to make decisions that defy any common sense and just seem out of touch with reality. And what I always say is, if you don't understand why they're doing this, follow the money. And uh, you know, it just feels to me, you know, why are they, they pushing uh, jabs so hard mm. uh, to children? And it's interesting, isn't it, for example, with children. I, I think the latest data I've seen is uh, that about 14 or 15 percent of 12 to 15 year olds have been jabbed. Yeah. Totally contrary to what all the, uh, all the opinion polls supposedly said uh, parents would want to yeah, do right you know uh, so so the proof's in the pudding uh, and you just wonder why why is he trying to keep uh pushing these boosters well of course you know some of the vaccine companies are making huge money why are we still testing a million healthy people a day when most countries they're just testing those who've got some form. Well, this is the thing. So they test all these people, they get all these positive tests, and then they tell us that we've got a problem. Uh, while looking across to Europe, where hardly any testing is being done, um, their rates are lower. Well, there's a surprise. You know, it's almost as if they're sort of painting themselves into a corner deliberately. It, it, it's exactly again, it's, it's not rocket science. It's basic common sense. Mm. And as, as I say, you know, we just shouldn't be testing. Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of perfectly healthy people every day. What what you actually end up doing, of course, is just, uh, in, in a sense, extending the sense of anxiety, extending the sense of fear. Mm. And I just felt that uh, Javid's press conference, it was like another form of, of, uh, of scaremongering. But here's the real grab, Mike. Mm. I don't think that uh, a huge chunk of... Of, of the population will put up with any more of the sort of restrictions that he's talking about. Mm. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I think unless uh, unless there's a uh, a significant new variant of concern uh, that uh, that is more harmful, in particular, that is more harmful to the young, um, uh, unless you get that scenario, then. Uh, I think otherwise people will say, no, enough's enough. Yes. Uh, I'm done. You well, know, I think I'm, a lot of people are I'm, saying I'm, that already. But already we're starting to... S- Sorry, Richard, I was yeah, going to say, already we're seeing these signs of, 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 you know, what is fully vaccinated and what does it mean? You know, if they start saying, oh, now there's already a story leaked out this morning from Downing Street saying, oh, you know, if you don't get the booster, you might not be able to go anywhere next summer. Well, I'm sorry, that to me is tantamount to blackmail. It is, and, and that's exactly the language that you're starting to see from the health secretary and the education secretary, for example, with children, sort of inferring, well, if, if the children don't get jabbed, mm. then they may not be able to get the same uh, education, the same number of face-to-face yeah. classes. And it's just that sort of insidious blackmail. And, and actually, the reality is that we've all done our bits. Mm. Uh, you know, we, 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 we stayed at home. We protected the NHS. We got jabbed. We've done all that. 
Uh, and now, actually, people want to get on with their lives again. And they want to be able to put food on the table. And we've got to get this, this country going again. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think people just, people just feel uh, they're done with it. And, uh, and actually, of course, the truth is, as, as literally dozens of, of medical people that I've spoken to, the best form of immunity in the long term is actual natural immunity from having caused mm. it. And, of course, what we're seeing is, and, and let's just remind ourselves, that being double-jabbed, yes, it's very successful at reducing the risk of hospitalisation and death, and, and that's great. But we know that it, it, it doesn't stop transmission and it doesn't stop you catching the virus. And actually, although many people in the press are sort of loathe to report it, the reality is, in a sense, this only really ends when, when everybody who's been double-jabbed end up catching it in some way, in some mild way, uh, and if they haven't got other health conditions, uh, and then they've got long-term natural immunity, and mm. that's what's going on in the moment. It's quite clever. You, know, you look at the numbers of, uh, of positive cases, and and that's the reality. That's what happened. People yeah. are getting on with their day. Well, this is it. I mean, we get all um, this nonsense and guff about how all the infection rates are going up again, but no, at no time do they ever say, which is actually good because it means more people have got immunity. They don't say that. And again, it, it, it's, well, you wonder why. You really do wonder why. And it brings you on to um, the sort of the, the, the doctors, the GPs in, in their union. And, and there's some fantastic doctors and some fantastic GPs, you know, who are, uh, and, and throughout the whole crisis, have been seeing people face to face. But it's that, it's the sort of unionised, as you inferred, scargalised. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Scargill will see you now. I know you won't. He's on strike. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it really does. And, and many of the listeners won't remember who, who Scargill was. But, you know, this was a man who, and of course, then we were utterly reliant on that. This was a man who, who tried to basically bring the country to a complete mm. standstill in the 70s and early 1980s. Yes, and, while operating uh, from his luxury apartment in the Barbican. In, indeed. And, and it, I think we're in a sort of similar situation now where uh, the unionised uh, BMA, who, by the way, just to remind everyone, um, actually, uh, they objected to the very creation of the NHS uh, just after the Second World War because they were concerned their doctors wouldn't be able to earn uh, the significant amounts of money that they previously earned. Um, so they haven't exactly got a great track record. Uh, and you almost sort of think whatever the BMA uh, says, if you if you actually do the opposite, or if you think the opposite, then you'll be nearer the truth, yeah. the sensible uh, decision. But I think it's absolutely appalling that they are saying that under no way could uh, could GPs go back to achieving the sort of face to face appointment ratios that they were achieving pre COVID. Yeah, I know. I think it is around about eighty percent, and you just think, why not? And, exactly. and frankly. If, if, if there's a few, I suspect actually, Michael, the press maybe the chances are that the press is sort of making quite a big thing of it. The number of GPs who are actually uh, refusing to go back to pre-COVID levels, I suspect it's the minority of GPs. Uh, that's the reality. Yes, but uh, anyone who's associated with the BMA, I actually heard one of them this morning talking about how, well, um, frankly, if you've got a cold, you know, I don't want to see you. And you're going, sorry, you're a doctor. What do you mean don't want to see me? And it's like, oh, we don't want sick people coming into the surgery to infect other people. I mean, are we now having to talk about changing the entire idea of a GP surgery? 
I think it's a small minority of GPs uh, that are behaving in this sort of militant, unionised way. And I think maybe you just have to say, look, uh, actually, if you're not prepared to see patients face-to-face, folks, actually, it's a breach of contract. Yeah. So very happy to rip up your contract. And if you want to work part-time from home, then you get a part-time from home uh, type of um, pay rate. Yeah. And that's very different, uh, actually, to the very significant pay that GPs do receive. Yes, absolutely so, right. You know, one final uh, one final thing, Richard, uh, before you go. Um, I don't know whether you've seen this. Mayor Sadiq Khan offers grants of £25,000 each to Londoners to decolonise their street names in a £1 million campaign uh, after the BLM-inspired process. I mean, let's not forget, this is our money we're talking about here. He wants to rename streets. Now, obviously, there are some streets that you might wish to rename. For example, one of the ones that they show is Black Boy Lane. I can see why he'd want to change that. But there are other streets named after, for example, uh, a businessman uh, called Milligan, Milligan Street. I mean, why would you want to change that? It's, you know, I mean, again, so much of what Sadiq Khan does and says, uh, you know, it, it, it absolutely beggars, it just beggars belief. Mm. Uh, this, this is a man who couldn't even, uh, in his Twitter, Twitter account, Twitter feed, he couldn't even uh, say that, uh, that Sir David Amos had been murdered. He said he, he had passed. He didn't pass. He was brutally murdered uh, doing his surgery. And I just think Sadiq Khan, uh, he just dislikes so much of, of what is traditionally British, yeah. sort of traditional British values. Yeah. And he's always trying to, as you say, uh, to get rid of uh, perfectly decent street names that have been there for decades, decades and decades. And again, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm. And yes, there might be some isolated examples, but it's like the statues. You know, he's got this expensive commission uh, to, uh, to to get rid of uh, get rid of some statues, and you just think, why? I mean, fine, let's celebrate great new uh, achievers mm. in, in in the current world, perhaps some new statues. But you don't need to get rid of a whole load of of perfectly valid, perfectly decent statues from which we all learn about yeah. our heritage our history, you know, much of which is amazing and fantastic, and much of which, frankly, um, you know, we might say, no, actually, that, that's not where we, where we would be today, uh, and we should learn from it and understand why it happened and why it was, why that sort of thing took place, whether it was two, three, four hundred years ago. Mm. Yeah, that's, well, listen, that's, there was that's, lots that's of things that happened. And that's what you learn from. Yeah, lots of things happened 400 years ago. I mean, they used to guillotine people in Paris to death. You know, I don't suppose they'd be uh, uh, saying, therefore, we should never mention any of the names of any of the French kings or queens or Marianne's, whatever, anything like that. You know, as if it didn't ever happen. That's madness. And, and, and this, is, this is the same Sadiq Khan, uh, who, as you say, is, is trying to make life much, mm. much harder and more expensive for decent uh, trades folk, trying to get to work, now having to pay a fortune... Mm. Uh, if their vehicle uh, is a bit too old. And and the same Mayor of London, of course, uh, who ultimately is responsible for the, these low-traffic neighbourhood schemes, yeah. which, again, are incredibly disruptive to many, many communities, causing absolute chaos, to the point now where, you know, some people won't even deliver to certain streets because right. they just can't get in and out of them uh, without, without risking a huge fine or being stuck in a jail. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely ridiculous. Richard, great to talk to you as ever. You're off this weekend, I think, aren't you? 
I am indeed, but I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. Mark. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much indeed. Richard Tice, Leader of Inform UK, Talk Radio presenter, of course, uh, generally speaking, on a Sunday from 10 o'clock. You want to watch that and listen to that every single week. Loads going on still. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So let us talk now, though, uh, to Mike Yardley, writer, broadcaster, terror expert, also a man that knows a thing or two about guns. And we wanted to talk to Mike because there's a terrible story uh, that came in overnight from New Mexico uh, in the US of A, where Alec Baldwin has accidentally shot and killed a woman, a cinematographer, with a prop gun and wounded the film director on a set of a new movie that he was making there called Rust. Obviously devastating for Alec Baldwin, but Mike Yardley's here to try and explain to us how this could have happened. Mike, a very good morning to you. Yeah, hi, Mike. And I mean, obviously, this is a desperate tragedy for the cinematographer, for the director, who I believe was also shot, and for Mr. Baldwin himself. He'll probably never recover from this. Mm. Um, I have been in this situation myself in Hollywood. I've been the actor pulling the trigger. I've been the armorer, and I've been the stunt coordinator. So I I have some experience of this sort of situation. Yes. Well, this is why you're the perfect guest for this, Mike, because I thought you might know a bit about this, because, I mean, I'm very much... I mean, I've only once fired a gun in my entire life, which was on the firing range uh, up in the Bronx of the NYPD, um, and it was quite a frightening experience, actually. Um, Never did I expect such a small thing to have such a kick, you know. Um, So I don't really know the difference between whether you put a blank bullet in a, in, a, in a prop gun or whether there's nothing. Tell us, explain to us what the prop gun actually does normally. Well, we don't know if it, yeah, we don't know if it was a prop gun or a real gun. I mean, usually in films, you, you do use real guns, particularly in America. We don't use them so much in the UK. In the UK, in film and TV productions, it's sometimes only the hero who actually has a, a real gun and it's very carefully supervised and mm. you've got much tougher gun laws. But you get blank firers... Um, and you get weapons that look like real guns, um, but don't do anything, but they function. Um, You have to have someone in charge. In the UK, there'd be a risk assessment. And when I was in Hollywood, um, we certainly had a risk assessment too. You'd have an an armorer and you would have a stunt coordinator. Now you may remember that case with Bruce Lee's son. I think it was in 1993, but early 1990s. Um, when he was shot on set Mm. by a gun, and it was quite an extraordinary situation because they had had a real bullet head in the gun for some close-up shot, I believe, or something similar, and then somebody hadn't checked the gun, and it was then reloaded with a blank, and effectively the blank then provided the propellant for the bullet which was in the gun that shouldn't have been there Mm. from the Mm -hmm. close-up shot, and that, that killed him. Now, something similar could have happened in this case. I mean, if you are on set, and here this is an incident in New Mexico, the US is awash with real guns at the moment. I mean, just if you look at the the crime figures, I mean, they had 10,000 firearms homicides in a typical year. I think last year there was nearly double that number. And there have been millions of guns sold in the last few years because people are feeling insecure. Yeah. So there are lots of guns and lots of real ammunition, and it's not particularly restricted in the US. The guns are more restricted than the ammunition. So it's quite possible on set in the West for someone to have, for example, bullets in their pocket. Um, But the circumstances of this, with the cinematographer being shot, suggests to me a shot to camera and that something has gone horribly wrong um, with that shot to camera. Um, but, of course, there are all sorts of an infinite number of um, other possibilities. Um, but in some productions, there would be protection 
for the for the camera. There would be perspex screens. And another principle that you would always go by, and I've done this myself on set, is you would never fire the gun directly um, at another actor. Mm. You would fire to the side of the actor. And the only exception to that might be some specialist shot um, going into camera for whatever reason. But again, the the facts will probably come out, Mike. Yes, I mean, like all of these terrible tragedies, there's usually a series of sort of errors that have happened or something didn't get done that was meant to get done and all of that. But is it the case, though, that you... So you can... From what I can understand you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, so you can have a real gun which can actually be loaded up either with real bullets or blanks or a mixture of the two? Um, well, you can certainly... In the States, in these Western films, they will typically be using real guns. Um, and they will be using blanks. Now, mm. blanks of themselves can be dangerous. I mean, blanks can be improperly loaded. Um, you know, things can get inside blanks. Yeah. Um, blanks themselves present a hazard. Um, but if something, for example, got stuck in the barrel of a gun, that could then become a projectile with the blank behind it. Yes. You then have, as well as that possibility, Mike, the fact that a real cartridge might get accidentally loaded into a gun that's being used on set. That's not impossible either. Mm. Um, so there, there, unfortunately, there are a lot of ways it can go wrong. And I always stress to people when I'm training them, you know, triple level safety. You know, you don't, you're not just dependent on one safety check, you know, multiple safety checks. And you've got to some, have somebody who's a professional and who's in charge. Now, this film was being made in New Mexico. And one question that comes to mind was, was this a union production? or were costs being cut? That's another possibility. I mean, did they have, you know, a, pro a professional armor, a professional stunt coordinator, yeah. um, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff? I mean, it is a hugely responsible job being being the armorer, of course. Yes. And yeah. very rarely do things go wrong. We don't see many, I'm gonna to touch wood as I say this, we don't see many accidents in the UK. And I think that's because we use fewer real guns in dramatic productions. Um, but um, these incidents, nevertheless, are very, very rare, happily. Well, unfortunately, when I lived and worked in the US, you know, there would be so many stories of, you know, a child finding the father's gun and killing one of his siblings because they didn't realise that it was full of weapons and full of bullets and, you know, just really, really incredible. And also the thing about the American public is that every time there is a shooting incident or what is called a mass shooting incident, the, the purchasing of guns actually goes up. And whenever any politician starts talking about, you know, properly putting some more gun controls on, the, the, the purchasing goes up. Incredible. It is extraordinary. And I've been looking at these, you know, that situation recently. And as I said, normally in the US, they have about 10,000 firearms homicides and something like 30,000 firearms deaths. Well, last year they had getting on for 20,000 mm. firearms homicides, whether or not that's a result of lockdown, I don't know. Um, but it probably is yeah. massive gun sales. There's something approaching 10 million Armalite type AR-15 rifles that have been semi-automatic rifles that have been sold to civilians in the US. I mean, guns are, you know, you have to have a criminal records check before you can buy one. That usually happens quite quickly. Ammunition is often very, very easy to acquire in the States. Oh, yeah. And roughly oh, yeah. speaking, there's a gun for every person in America, but only about something under half the population own them. Um, but it is an extraordinary situation. Mm. And America is a tinderbox at the moment because all those, you know, loads of people armed to the teeth. And of course, the country isn't politically very stable at the moment. No. Well, that's the there thing. There are an awful lot of Trump supporters with guns. Yeah. I don't know. 
Well, there are an awful lot of Democrats with guns as well, which is something which is sort of True. almost sort of you know counterintuitive, really, if you think about it. But but I mean, I was always it, it depends. It, it depends where you are, of course, yeah. because you know in in the um, the Western states and the South, you've got Southern Democrats, which are a, a rather different thing to East Coast Democrats. Yeah. But generally, the the National Rifle Association um, would tend towards the right. Yeah. And of course, it's a famous lobby with the um, the right to keep and bear arms in the US Constitution. Of course, they got it from us, by the way. Mm. It's in our Bill of Rights, but it was an, a right, it was something restricted to Protestants for the protection of the realm against Catholics. But the Americans then incorporated that as the Second Amendment um, in the US. And of course, um, it means that you can go out and buy a gun far more easily yeah. in the US <laughs> than you can in the UK. And just to put those figures previously into comparison, US has something like 10,000 firearms homicides typically in a year, double that last year. We typically have about 50. Mm. And even if you correct for population, that which is the factor of six, that is a colossal difference. And it is because, you know, in the UK, guns are very tightly restricted and properly so. And I think it is a social benefit. And although people will argue otherwise, I think the r insane number of guns in private hands in the US and often untrained hands is a reason that they have problems. But that said, the problems are also usually associated with drugs. Mm. Most most mm. Uh, US drug uh, gun crime is associated with drugs and not necessarily the people who are just, you know, stocking no. up on armor. No, of course, and they may well be people who have guns that are held illegally. But I was always astonished that even, and it was only really after that Bowling for Columbine um, documentary that Michael Moore did that he managed to convince Walmart, which effectively was the ASDA of America, where it used to be, I used to go to visit my sister and I go to the local Walmart, and there was the gun section. You know, now they don't sell guns anymore, but they still sell bullets, right? So I go in there, but now I'll be going there hopefully at Christmas, um, just to see what they're selling. And they sell everything from, you know, short snub bullets to sort of practically dum-dum bullets. I mean, you can just buy anything you like. And then, you know, pick up some popcorn and some shampoo on the way out. Yeah, nine, nine millimeter, all more or less without restriction. Yeah. Do you know how many mass shootings there were in the US last year? I was absolutely amazed. 600. Mm. Well, they, of course, they and call, that, they call it the shooting with more than four people. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, loads of people, but more than four. But I mean, I suppose the big problem here for this film uh, company now, aside from obviously the tragedy, is, is the insurance um, problem that they're now going to have. Uh, and maybe the whole business is going to get as a result of this. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be the financial implications in the States are, of course, colossal. Mm. And they're going to be going across, you know, they're going to be seeing every T was crossed and every I dotted. Was everything done properly on set? Were any costs cut? Um, you know, did who was in charge of and precisely of what? What were the risk, risk assessments done? These are things that they will go over in minute detail. And, you know, being America, um, you know, you would see typically multi-million dollar settlements, I would think. Mm. Um, but again, let's come back to Mr. Baldwin himself, as well as the tragic victims of this. I mean, he must be feeling absolutely terrible. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I mean, whatever may have gone wrong, um, it is a dreadful situation for him to be in. Yeah, I think, well, just just generally dreadful as well. Mike, thanks very much indeed. Hope you're well. Uh, didn't get a chance to talk about your own situation, but we will, I'm sure, catch up on that next week. Mike Yardley, writer, broadcaster, expert on the gun culture of the United States of America as well, which has led to this terrible tragedy. Um, nobody really knows yet what happened. I guess we will find out over the course of the next several days.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are many stories uh, in the big wide world of international journalism, but there are a few stories, I think, that will not shake you to your very core and will not enrage you uh, than the one that we're about to hear. Mark Francois is here. Uh, I'm delighted to say, Mark, welcome to uh, the Independent Republic. Thank you for coming in. Good morning. I'm I'm delighted to be uh, in the Republic this morning. Yes, well, it is the home of common sense and there's not a lot of it about. So do tell us, though, because there's been so many stories this week and I know that some of the press have covered this, but it's not something that I've heard many people talk about. So... Tell us the story you want to tell us. Well, in essence, uh, Dennis Hutchings was a British Army veteran who was accused of killing a young man in Ireland in, while he was on active service on Operation Banner during the Troubles in the early 1970s. He always denied the charge. He was investigated twice, very thoroughly. He was cleared. He was told that the matter was ended. And then some years ago, some would say for political reasons... And yet another investigation was begun. Dennis wanted to have his day in court. He always denied the charges. It took six and a half years for the case to come to trial. By then he was dying. Mm. He had a number of medical complications and then he got COVID. And he died during the trial. This whole process cost a vast amount of taxpayers' money, and he never really even got the chance to give his side of the story. And he's now dead. Yeah. And uh, the reason I've come on your show you can't, is to call out this whole process and to call out the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis. Yeah. So j- just quickly, if you remember the timeline, in 2017, in the Conservative Party's 
general election manifesto, we promised to address this issue. Boris Johnson, when he ran to become leader of the Tory party and thus prime minister, signed a handwritten pledge in the Sun newspaper in July 2019 when he promised to legislate to protect veterans, including Northern Ireland veterans. It specifically said that in the pledge that Mm. Boris signed from this cycle of repeated investigations. And he promised to do that by the next general election. Well, we then had a general election in 2019, and again, we repeated this pledge to do something about it in our general election manifesto. Nearly two years on, we have done nothing. And part of the problem with this is we produced a bill to give protection to Iraq and um, Afghan veterans. Mm. That bill was led by the Ministry of Defence. That's now on the statute book right. as the overseas operation. So does that mean they can't be prosecuted? It, 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 it means it's very difficult for people to bring a vexatious prosecution right. against them. Okay. okay, And actually, recently, the last of the, those Iraq uh, investigations have completed. Over 1,200 were undertaken. None resulted in a prosecution. What a waste of money. Yeah, because the evidence just never justified it, right? Okay. So the MOD led on that bill. The problem began when they decided to allow the Northern Ireland office to do the similar legislation for Northern Ireland operatives who served on Op Banner. Now, if you want to know what the, the Northern Ireland office civil servants have never wanted to do this. And if you want me to give you, let me just sum it up. A couple of years ago or so, a Northern Ireland office civil servant claimed compensation and was paid £10,000 of British taxpayers' money, your listeners' money, because he claimed he was offended by having to walk past a portrait of Her Majesty the Queen on the way to his desk in the NIO in the morning. Unbelievable. They they paid him the money and they took the portrait of the Queen off the wall. Dear me. Now... When Julian Smith became the Northern Ireland Secretary, he had it put back up, yeah. but we paid the money, right. right? And is this guy still working there as far as I, we know? I, I don't know. Maybe he's not as offended anymore. Uh, uh, well, perhaps he's not. You know, Perhaps he's come to terms with having to walk past a portrait, uh, a portrait of his own sovereign. Yeah. And But that in one vignette sums up yeah. the Northern Ireland office. Yes. These are the people who are supposed to be constructing this legislation to help mm. protect veterans right. right now i thought just to interrupt you for a second mark i'm assuming the 2017 declaration and and sort of signed uh, the pledge that, that boris signed was all part of him setting up the office of the veterans right well no 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 sorry 2017 was the manifesto yes 2019 was a pledge boris signed sorry. when he was running to be but leader. do you remember when he set up the office for veterans um the office of veterans and he put johnny affairs, mercer yeah. in charge of yes. it, and then johnny mercer later resigned because he wasn't yes. happy with yeah. what was happening well well johnny feels johnny knew dennis hutchings yeah i didn't know dennis hutchings personally and right. johnny went to support the trial mm. now if you think I'm angry with you know Brandon Lewis. Ring up Johnny Mercer mm. and then stand well back. Yes, right. So you know it's worth you talking to Johnny yes. Mercer on this. We've tried to get him on a couple of times actually, but we'll, well, we'll try well, again. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not you know I'm not Johnny Mercer's you know agent. Right. He's more than capable of mm. talking for himself, but he can give you far more detail yeah. on this case uh, th- than I can. But Brandon Lewis has had a number of meetings mm. with those of us who are you know uh, 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 feel strongly about this issue for a year now. And he's done precisely nothing. Mm. He keep he told us that he was going to bring forward this legislation before Parliament by the summer recess in July. Nothing. Mm. He keeps saying he's going to bring it forward. 
where's you know where's your bill brand right. so B- brandon lewis is a three-way failure he's failed the prime minister because he's failed to implement the promise that the prime minister gave mm. He's failed the Conservative Party because we like to think of ourselves as the party of the armed forces. But on this one, you could have fooled me. Mm. And he's failed the veterans. Yes. Yes. You know, you go and have a drink in a a Royal British Legion with a bunch of veterans, which I've done. I mentioned the name of Brandon Lewis. Yes. I mean, I couldn't read out on your show what they think of that Mm. bloke. Right. So he is a three way failure. Mm. Now, if he doesn't want to bring in this legislation, I'm sure we can find another secretary of state who does. Right. Uh, So look, I I, I know I'm upset because last Friday somebody killed my best friend in politics. Mm. So I know I'm upset. Right. I'm self-aware in that sense. But nonetheless, for me and some of my colleagues, what happened to Dennis Hutchings was the last straw. He yeah. waited six and a half years yeah. to have his day in court, and then he died in the middle of it. Where's your bill, Brandon? Yes. Bring in the bill. Stop in it. Brandon Lewis is a world-class procrastinator. Yeah. The man is completely and utterly full of words. Yes. Yeah. And we're beyond words now. We want legislation. Mm. And if he can't produce it, let's find someone who can. Yes, because I was under the impression that uh, all of these prosecutions would would end. I mean, after the the collapse of the last trial, which I think was it Soldier X. um, Well, the the part of the problem has been, you know, we're talking about events half a century ago in some cases. And it's very difficult, you know, to have the right kind of evidence that you would need to mount a successful prosecution. I I think in one of the trials, and obviously when we're talking about trials, we have to be careful, right? But I think in one of the trials that you're talking about, the judge ruled that when they were using evidence that these guys gave Mm. at the time in the 70s, they were were not interviewed under caution. They were not, in effect, read their rights. And they were trying to use some of those witness statements for 50 years ago, yes, and the judge ruled that they were effectively inadmissible. Mm. So it is now practically very difficult to bring a prosecutor. Oh, by the way, you might think that we would want to prosecute some alleged members of the IRA. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that is so incongruous to most people who are listening to you today and, and have listened to me in the past is that so many IRA killers, and I'm going to call them that, are walking around. Well, hang on. Because they were all freed. Well... They've got, metaphorically, they've got so-called letters of comfort in their pocket. Well, that's nice. As part of the Good Friday Agreement, there was a kind of side deal. Mm. And in the end, Blair's government gave several hundred of these people so-called letters of comfort to say that they would not be prosecuted. Now, the government argued that those letters of comfort have no legal validity. But the trial of the alleged Hyde Park bomber, Mm. I'm not even going to mention his name, collapsed famously, when he produced one of these letters of comfort and the judge ruled there'd been an abusive process and the trial collapsed. So don't tell me that these letters of comfort have no legal force because when one bloke produced one in court, that was the end of the trial, Mm. right? So don't give me some bureaucratic gobbledygook about that, right? So a, a lot of alleged IRA terrorists have been off the hook for years. They've slept comfortably in their beds at night. Veterans... You know, many of them from northern red wall seats, you know, from gritty northern towns in the 70s who join the army. You know, there's a young bloke of 18 years of age in the dark, in the rain, lying in a ditch in Crossmaglen in 1972. 
right? Mm. These are the sorts of people we're still going after. Yeah. Okay? This yeah, it's an it, absolute disgrace. It is it? time to draw a line under mm. this, Mike. And the only way we draw the line is when Brandon Lewis or someone more competent brings forward the legislation which the Conservative Party have been promising for four years. Mm. Now, for God's sake, where's your bill, Brandon? Yeah. What else is he doing? I mean, could he argue, for example, or would he say, oh, well, I've been caught up trying to sort out the Brexit negotiations because no, he hasn't done Lord that Frost. either. Well, yeah. actually, give this to Lord Frost. Lord yeah. Frost, no, Lord Frost is, is competent. I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm saying, would he give you that excuse? I don't know. He's given us all sorts of excuses. Mm. You know, you have meetings with this guy, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, he, uh, we need a QC's opinion. Uh, we're waiting for policy guidance from number 10. Right. Uh, we've got to have a round table. And basically, a number of it, we're just exasperated with yeah. the bloke. You know, it's, this has just gone on and on and on and on. Yeah. I say he's a world-class procrastinator. He's just simply not up to it. Yeah. yeah. So, let you know, if he can't do it, let's find someone who can. Yes. Yeah? Is there another case in the, in, in the offing? Because, I mean, you might say Philip Barden, who acted um, for Dennis Hutchings, said he would be alive today had he not been compelled to go to Northern Ireland to stand trial. Now, that's pretty stark as a statement. His own uh, defence barrister has said that this trial actually contributed to his death. Well, I think it did. Yeah. Look, again, really, you need to talk to Johnny because he knew Dennis Hutchings in a way that I didn't. Yeah. But Dennis Hutchings was very seriously ill, mm. and he basically kept himself alive so he could have his day in court. He wanted to clear his name. He wanted to look the jury in the eye and, if you like, give his version of events. Remember, mm. he was there, right? Yeah. So that kind of kept him alive. Yeah. And then he dies in the middle of the trial. Mm. And that yeah. was only on Monday, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it took six and a half years for this case to come to court. Why couldn't they have done it quicker? And what must his family have been through? And what must they be going through now? Because effectively, you could say... Not that I think that he has any uh, anything to answer for, but, but he's gone to his grave without clearing his name, hasn't he? Effectively, yes. Right? Now, not, not, not suggesting for a minute that therefore there is any tainted um, suspicion over him, but, but he wanted to clear his name, but he wasn't able to. No, if, if you want more about Dennis, I think you've really got mm. to talk to Johnny. We will. Because, you, know, you know, Johnny knew him, knew him well. Yeah. But, you know, I, my sincere condolences to his family... And, you know, what about the other families of Northern mm. Ireland veterans who, you know, you know, what, you know, what about the kids who are like, you know, why does granddad start crying sometimes when we talk about Northern Ireland? Mm. Yeah. What about the families of the, you know, you, you always hear about the families of the quotes victims. What about the families yeah. of the soldiers? Right? What about the soldiers? I was actually, by entirely coincidence, I was at the Special Forces Club yesterday and they've got a poem as you walk in and it says, I have one life to give. I give it to you. And that's what these guys do for us, right? And I find that incredible. And why can we not give ourselves to them? These men, they were mainly men, very young, joined the army. They were sent to Northern Ireland in the Troubles. You've got to remember, in the early 1970s, you know, you, you had like, you know, four bombs going off in yeah. Belfast every day. Mm. It was an extremely tough mission to go on, yeah. right? Uh, you know, talk to my colleague Ian Duncan Smith. You know, he you know he served in Northern Ireland, right? Yes. You know, talk to him about. It. I didn't, 
uh, he did, mm. right? So, so it was an extremely difficult environment, and these guys were piggy in the middle. And, you know, there were loyalist terrorists too, don't forget. So you've got the IRA on the one hand, you've got the UVF on the other, and these blokes are trying to uphold the law in the middle of chaos. Mm. So how do we repay them? And not really any kind of chaos that they could fight. I mean, it wasn't a a proper battle. So how do we repay them? We try to prosecute them for political reasons, Mm. right? So there is no other country on earth that would do this to their own veterans, right? Mm. The Americans wouldn't do this, the French wouldn't do it, the Australians wouldn't do it the canadian only the british why why are we doing this we're doing this to placate Sinn Féin mm. we're doing this to keep Sinn Féin in the Northern Ireland executive at any cost that's what we're doing and we may as well be honest about it yes all right so i i i reiterate my point if brandon lewis who's had more than enough time to bring forward this legislation, hasn't got the gumption to do it, he should get out of the way and let someone else who's more capable do it. This has gone on long enough. Yeah, and it will be a stain on Boris Johnson's prime ministership if it doesn't get solved. Because well, if, I, I, if I, don't bring, blame, I don't blame the prime minister. The well, prime he's, the, he's the one in charge of the, yeah, yeah, the but cabinet. Look, when the prime minister blame, signed that pledge, mm. I believe he did it in good faith. Mm. I'm not blaming the Prime Minister. I'm blaming his useless Secretary no, of State for not carrying out his wishes. But he's just had a reshuffle. He could have kicked him out and given it the job to somebody else. Why doesn't he have another reshuffle? Look, that's that's a matter for the Prime Minister. Mm. I'm just a backbench MP. All I want is a Secretary of State for Northern Ireland who is going to promise, honour the promise that the Conservative Party has been talking about for four years. Mm. I don't care who they are. Yeah. I just want them to bring in the bill. Yes. Now, let me ask you about something else, Mark. I can yeah. tell that you're very, very upset about this, and, and, and I'm glad to see that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to shirk away from that because we want our politicians to be passionate. We want you to believe in stuff because too often well, well, look, to you, be you fair, guys get accused of not believing in anything. Well, people, and I'm not having that. Well, people say politicians are all grey men and they mm. don't stand for anything. Well, that's probably, you know, there might be some who are like that, mm. but we're not all like that. No. And, you know, I'm not the only Tory MP to feel strongly about this. You know, go and ask around in the mm. tea room, right? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've got to do this now. Yeah. We, we promised. We promised as a party. We promised multiple times, let's do what we said we would yes. do. We're well, not asking to do anything that we didn't offer yeah. to do. All we're asking is to do what we promised to do multiple times. Exactly. And that's what I want to bring you on to, because a lot of people have been critical at the moment of the Tory party, as it currently appears to be, uh, which is a party of high tax, a party with no control over immigration, a party that, yes, has sorted out Brexit, has a few little bits and pieces around it to do, but it is not as conservative as the party that lots of people thought they were voting in in 2019. Well, I don't. I came here really to talk about one subject. I don't want to sound complacent, but we're still, you know, ten points up in the opinion polls. So, presumably, the public don't think that we're doing too badly. But I don't. Well, want that's because you haven't got any opposition. <coughs> I mean, you know, Keir Starmer literally couldn't win, um, you know, a one-legged race against nobody. Uh, that, that that that's a matter for you. <laughs> but 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 uh, uh, you know, he he paid a very sweet tribute to my to my. Friend David yes, and and I think so, some of the things you know, that were said fair. about about your friend and 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 the MP for Essex were brilliant, and I think that was a very um, good example of how Parliament works and how it can work. And, and uh, if I, only... th- I, th- I think collectively it was the Commons at its best. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't the normal barnyard. Yeah, and <coughs> I think in the end, you know, perhaps more by accident than design, 
it ended up being a celebration of David's life. You know, yeah. people came out smiling, which is, you know, if you knew the bloke, what do you Well, was... he seemed, you know, I didn't know him, but he seems a remarkable guy. My favourite picture that I saw over the whole of the weekend was of him dressed up as a knight on a horse when he was knighted. I just thought that... <laughs> Very quickly, what, what happened was, so, you know, he was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen at Windsor, and he wrote something in our local paper, The Echo, very sweet, that said, you know, as a young lad who grew up in a terrace house in Forest Gate... It never occurred to me for one moment that one day I would be knighted by a queen in a castle. Mm. You know, what a yeah. wonderful thing. And he was immensely proud of that. So a little while afterwards, he, he was going to the Mayor of Southend Civic Reception at a place called Porter's. It's a medieval lodge. It's sort of their version of the mansion. Right. House, Mike, yeah? okay. <clears throat> so he was a great animal lover, right? So what does he do? He, he gets a mate who runs an animal sanctuary to lend him a tame horse. Right. And uh, he goes to a costumier's and he hires a kind of lightweight suit and armour. Right. And then on the appointed day, he comes clod hopping up the drive, <laughs> you know, on the back of this horse in this suit of armour, you know. And, and you know, uh, I think someone like, you know, the, the, the driver was polishing the mayoral car or something. And they, they looked up at him and said, you know, Sir David, what are you doing? And he said, I'm a knight. <laughs> and he then dismounts from this horse, right. you know, probably ask the bloke, you know, hold my horse or yeah. something, and then walks into the civic reception, you know, picks up a canopy and a glass of wine and starts chatting to people... Dressed in armour. Dressed in a suit of armour, yeah, you brilliant. know. That was the measure Quite of the essentially guy. British, though. Yeah, yeah, yes, I can't think of any other colleague in the House of <laughs> no. Commons, you know, who, whoever would have done, you know, mm. maybe Stephen Pound or yeah. someone who's no longer yeah. an MP, you know, right. he was a great character. Yeah. But, you know, that's the sort of bloke that David was, mm. and I hope that when we paid tribute on Monday, including the Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition... You know, we did him justice. And I thought one of the nicest things was, was that uh, a journalist wrote the following morning, on the Tuesday morning, it was a measure of how much he was loved that there were as many tri tributes from Labour MPs as there were from mm. Tories. You know, yeah. David was genuinely loved uh, across the House of Commons, and that came out, I think, very, very clearly on Monday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mark, listen, good to see you. Thank you so much for coming in, and thank you for your passion about the issue of Northern Ireland. And we will do our level best to continue it uh, and bring Johnny Mercer in and talk to um, Brandon Lewis and try and get something done, because I think you're right. It does need to be stopped. It has to, it has to stop. Hashtag, where's your bill, Brandon? Yeah, okay. okay. Put that out. Thanks. Mark Francois, thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, if, like me, you're slightly concerned about the way things are going uh, in terms of the dire sort of threats and the gloom and doom that was around when Sajid Javid gave his press conference the other day, um, he's basically trying to make everybody get a booster jab. Now, they're town saying in the Times this morning that a booster dose of Pfizer vaccine offers near total protection. It seems to me they said that about the second jab, uh, which we're now being told has run out after about five or six months after you've had it. You've got to get another one. Do you really? Many people are not doing it. They're a bit worried that the rollout is a bit slow. They're still worried about the fact that not very many kids have decided to take it because people between 12 and 15 tend not to want it really. Um, but let's talk now to Simon Clark, uh, Dr. Simon Clark, I should say, at Reading University, Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology. Simon, very good um, afternoon to you. We don't seem to have spoken for a long time. Good afternoon, Mike. No, long time no speech. Yeah, so it's how have you been? quiet for a few months. Yeah, how have you been? Uh, fine. I am returning to work. I am uh, in my office most days. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, things are slowly returning to normal. We're, we're teaching uh, in person and online, and that means we give students even more content than they had before. Right. Good stuff. So um, I wanted to get you on because we hadn't spoken for a while, because, um, you know, probably the last time you and I was, were speaking, there was still quite a fair amount of 
you know, uncertainty perhaps about yep. the travel business. There was uncertainty about red list countries, about whether, uh, you know, we were doing the right thing, whether the opening of the economy was too quick or too slow. We now seem to have reached a new phase, it seems to me. And I was a bit disappointed with Sergei Javid on uh, on Wednesday when he gave his press conference. I thought, you know, he didn't really he didn't really have a reason to have a press conference aside from to sort of more or less tell everyone to get a booster. Yeah, I think that was to address a lot of the, the, the froth that there's been in the, the newspapers and on the telly. Um, and he wanted to drive home the message about boosters, which uh, I know not everybody wants, but I think is is quite important. Uh, we're now seeing data that suggests that the after you've had a, uh, a third dose, your, your booster jab, you're going to get even better protection because, of course, unsurprisingly, and this does happen with other vaccines, um, after several months, the uh, immunity that you get from it starts to drop. Yes, but the trouble is they never told us any of that. And I think the problem for a lot of people is they've got kind of government message fatigue. And I certainly would feel like that because they didn't say uh, that after you had the two, you'd need a third. They only started saying that relatively recently because originally they were saying things like they're now saying about the booster that, oh, yeah, once you've had the two jabs, you'll get practically 95 percent protection. They didn't say that's only for six months. Ah, well, um, actually, uh, if, and I've written about this in The Spectator a few weeks ago, um, when the, the vaccines were relatively new, there were some journalists and politicians who pushed very hard <coughs> on me on what the vaccines could do for us. And I think there was some over-egging in the pudding. Mm. But having said that, uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance did say, we don't know, there may be the possibility that we'd end up needing to boost on an annual basis. So that flag was flown, it just wasn't really drawn attention to. And that's where we find ourselves. Well, I think that is the problem overall, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people feel as though um, they've been misled because people don't understand the workings of government, generally speaking. They see government ministers saying things, they see government ministers urging people to do things, and they assume that that's a genuine um, you know, all-encompassing wish. What they don't understand is that because the government haven't told them that they didn't really know if what they were saying at that particular time was, was correct. I mean, we've all seen the video of Chris Whitty saying right at the beginning of this, um, this will be a disease which barely touches most of the people of the population. And if you do get it, it's very unlikely to harm you. Well, that's true. And of course, but but uh, it affects enough people to gum up the hospitals and then that causes a problem for all the rest of us who are either untouched or unharmed by it. So that's well, to be fair, you see, that's another thing I would raise with you as well, because the only reason that the hospitals had a problem with dealing with everybody else was a make was because of their own making. The NHS decided they couldn't treat anybody else. And so they didn't. But in fact, we were never overwhelmed, even at the height of the of the worst of it in January and February. Uh, the uh, um, uh, general NHS perhaps wasn't, although there are infection control issues there, the intensive care and critical care facilities of it were, because they often operate at capacity anyway. And, uh, yeah, but that's quite small numbers, aren't they? Small, they're quite small it is numbers. small numbers, but it causes a problem uh, if you can't go in and have an operation, which is expected to be routine, but you might, in, the, in extremis, need uh, intensive care. Uh, that's where the problem lies. Yes, um, there, but, there but are, the decision were... not to have the the operation was not yours to take. It was the NHS's to take, and the NHS made that decision for you. Yeah, but there are also other questions about how you, uh, um, sort of, for example, give people chemotherapy if there are large numbers of people coughing up a virus in your hospital. That does cause real problems. They're not insurmountable, uh, and some elements of the NHS did work around them, but some of them didn't.
No, quite. And I fear, as I'm sure you do, Simon, uh, once again, as we enter, uh, you know, the winter, we're being told this could be a very challenging winter for the, you know, not for the first time. It could be worse than every other winter we've ever had. You know, we've been hearing this for 20 years. And I don't know that the NHS has done anything to change the way that it operates since last year in order to avoid whatever problems they may have had uh, so that this year we don't have them. Uh, a lot of the problem is that people don't get their flu jab. You could take, you could alleviate an awful lot of pressure if more people took the flu jab that is offered to them. And hopefully well, how many people go into hospital together. because they haven't had a flu jab then? Uh, well, I haven't got the figures, but it's quite a lot. Well, I'm uh, sorry, that's know, not very scientific, up... Simon. Quite a lot. <laughs> I'm not buying that. You know, quite yeah, a lot no, could sorry. be anything from twenty to twenty thousand. Yeah, well, you got me there, but I'm not going to budge on that. It does cause us problems. That, that is yeah, a, well, I mean, effectively, what the NHS appears to be saying to us now, and I include the GPs, is that, you know, the trouble with you lot is you keep getting sick and causing problems for the NHS. Well, that's what it's for. Uh, yeah, that you know, is what it's for. It's not a hospitality yeah. business. That is what it's for. But as with anything, we can all do a lot of things like getting our vaccinations done when they're offered to us to help out there. Yes, but I think genuine, generally and genuinely, you know, we have many great things to be thankful for about the way the NHS yep. works, but it is so inefficient in so many ways. And I just wish somebody would admit that who works inside the business and would actually start trying to fix it and address it. Whereas instead, what we get is this kind of, you know, um, mealy mouth kind of, well, the NHS works very hard. They're always at breaking point. You know, everybody's under pressure. Well, everybody's under pressure everywhere. You know, if you haven't got it running properly, get somebody to run it properly. Oh, uh, yeah, that that's a, a political matter, though. Isn't Why? It? That's the, that's because they're the ones who appoint people who run it. No, well, no. Well, I mean, we were dealing this week, for example, with the NHS uh, Confederation. Now, I don't know how much you know about the NHS Confederation, but it is a £15 million budgeted organisation listed mm -hmm. with the Charities Commission, but also a part of the NHS, which employs loads of people who are not in any way clinicians. They have nothing to do with medicine, and all they have to do with is procuring funding for themselves and other NHS bodies, which are also not medical. Now, to me, that seems like a massive waste of time. I worked out with a fellow uh, former NHS manager that the money that they waste could be spent on about 12 consultants, physicians, surgeons, and about 500 nurses. Yeah, there you go. So um, that's not know, a political, yeah. that is not a political decision to wipe them out of uh, existence and to make those jobs available on the front line. Surely that is yeah. an NHS management decision. Uh, yeah, but the management goes all the way up to the political layer, doesn't it? You're, well, not you're, really. asking, a, you're asking a mere scientist like me about the management of the NHS. Yes, but um, you also write for The Spectator, Simon, so you're clearly <laughs> a political operator. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Well, I mean, you know, you don't get to write for The Spectator if you're just a scientist. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, I think your modesty uh, is overwhelming, but I'm not <laughs> buying it. The, no, all I'm saying, Simon, is that we, we're stuck in this logjam, right, where um, different sides of political arguments argue two different things about the NHS. You know, yeah. the left like to believe that it's sacrosanct and it's great and nothing needs to be changed and all you've got to do is uh, clap them every night and it'll all work fine. Well, unfortunately, that's la-la land, right? The Tories, yeah. on the other hand, uh, seem to just be frightened of, 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 of attempting to modernise it because they'll be accused of trying to sell bits of it off. Yeah, I mean, as you know, Mike, the NHS saved my life. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm appreciative, kind of. And that's but, great, um, but that's that's their, but, also their job, isn't it? I mean, they should save yeah, your absolutely, life. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's, like uh, that's like saying my waitress brought my dinner. Well, good. 
yeah, absolutely. But nothing lasts forever. And uh, saying nothing should ever change is clearly not true. Yes. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, it's unwieldy. There isn't, you know, let's talk about GPs for a minute, right? The BMA, which as far as I'm concerned, might as well be the National Union uh, of Militant Mine Workers, right? Because that's how left wing they are. These are people now saying that they're going to ask doctors to go on strike. They're also saying they don't want to be part of any kind of, um, you know, value for money type um, street of shame type list. You know, they don't want to be forced to see people face to face. You know, they're literally giving us a list of demands. They don't want to see sick people. Well, that's not the business that they're in. Well, this is part of the problem. The BMA are a trade union. Yeah. It says that on their website. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. Yeah, with but that. I wish they'd have but, but union nothing... in the title. Well, yeah, but much of the media records them that uh, the status of a sort of a, an academic body or mm. a royal college or a think tank. Well, it's yeah. not. It's a trade. It's the doctors' trade union, right. and we shouldn't be coy about recognising that. Their their job is to look after the interests of their members, um, and as long as we remember that and accord them that status instead of something else, then uh, then I don't think we'll go far wrong. No. But we don't accord them that status. No, like that's right. And the problem is that they're not working as they should be. And, and then they're blaming COVID for that. But in fact, there are many, many more problems around the way that they operate. And there doesn't... I've been asking for probably the best part of about four months, who's in charge of our GPs? Apparently nobody is. I have no idea. Like I said, I am but a mere scientist. Yes. Well, you know, what do you think of the actual figures? Let's get back to the, what the, the, the figures are that Sajid Javid was giving out, you know, because there's quite a few holes in some of his arguments. You know, the booster may or may not be important. Lots of people are not convinced that it is. And that's their first problem. Secondly, um, he's saying that infections are up, which is also not really true. What he means by that is that positive tests are up. What we can also know is that deaths are down as are hospitalizations. Um, the tests are not up, tests are flat. So positive tests, sorry, positive results per test are going up. And that's the critical measure. Um, I think where um, you've got to be careful with numbers of tests is making international comparisons, which I'm not sure are helpful for all sorts of reasons. But we're not getting more, it is not true that we're getting more positives because we're doing more tests. Like I say, it's, it's relatively flat. Well, what's your view of why we're getting more? Uh, because we're moving into late autumn uh, and we'll be into early winter and respiratory tract viruses spread that time right. of year. That is what happens. Right. So an awful lot of the people who are testing positive, though, are probably not ill, are they? Uh, no, as is always the way. But um, there will be, you know, if we don't check spread, there will be more of it. Uh, and that virus will find out the people who are not, for whatever reason, protected yeah. by a vaccine. Right. But if they're not protected by a vaccine um, and they become ill, then surely that's their problem, isn't it? Well, that might be because, yes, some people have decided that they don't want to uh, to have a vaccine. But where do you draw the line? Do you stop admitting people into hospital for lung no, cancer if not. they smoke? Of course you don't. Uh, no, why do would you? you? Why would you, you even consider that? The point is, you, is that there's, there's loads of people, Simon, that are getting infected who have had the vaccine. So whether you've had it or yeah. not, it's not really the issue, is it? Well, they're less likely, they're less likely to get seriously ill and end up in hospital. So what's the problem then? If you've reduced, because if you've got as many people as 80 odd percent, is it 90 percent of the population that have been double vaccinated in England? Why are you worried about overwhelming the NHS? Because so many people won't be going into it. 
uh, enough will and enough of them will be taking the virus into hospital, even if that's not why they've gone there. And like I said, well, hang on. we've had no, hang on. If it wasn't, or... no, logically speaking, if it was not overwhelmed last year, why would it be overwhelmed this year when 90% of people are protected? Uh, because they're protected against serious disease, not transmitting virus. Yeah, but they're not going to hospital, though. You just said that. Um, this is what well, I mean. There's, there's there double is... speak going on. You can't have it both ways. You can't say everyone's protected if they get the vaccine, but then you're worried they might have to go to hospital, even though they won't have to go to hospital because they've had the vaccine. There are still a lot of people going into hospital with COVID. They, the, the numbers bear that out. That may not be why they're going in, but they still present a risk to other people who will be susceptible. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be worked around. It's not something. Yeah, that needs but this is to what I mean. Ignored. It doesn't. Well, it doesn't. Shouldn't one? It shouldn't be ignored. I'm not suggesting that, but it also shouldn't become the main focus of our healthcare system. There are more people dying now from other diseases. There are more people that die every single day from things other than COVID. That's always been the case, right? That's true. Many uh, of them are not transmissible. Well, it doesn't matter whether they're transmissible. If you're dying, you're dying. You know, you don't really, you don't die and go, oh, I'm glad I didn't transmit that to anybody else, do you? It does matter if they're transmissible because you can do something about it. Yes, you can. You can give people a vaccine, which we've done, right? So why would you now mm-hmm. have to have this exact same position about uh, worrying about the, the uh, overwhelming of an, of an NHS hospital when 90% of the people that you could have been overwhelmed by last year now won't be overwhelming you? Uh, because you're still ending up in a situation where you're admitting large numbers of people to hospital. It's not overwhelmed yet. Do we really want to get there? Um, well, we had all this conversation. Really yeah, but Simon, take- are you telling me, Simon, that this, this year is no different from last year? No, it's completely different. Right. And more people have had the disease. I mean, what we never hear from the government, what about all the people that have actually had it? If infections are going up, that means that more and more people every single week are getting it, right? So that must mm-hmm. have an effect, presumably, on their immune system and on their antibodies and all of that. So the combination of more people having had it, more people being vaccinated and therefore safeguarded, means right. that it's an entirely different picture from the one that we were about to enter last November. Allowing the virus to course through society is not a way to control it. Well, that's kind of what it's done, though, isn't it? No, because in exactly the same way that uh, that having a vaccine uh, uh, takes the edge off, or basically it almost virtually eliminates, not quite, but almost eliminates serious disease. Mm. It doesn't eliminate transmission. It reduces it. So in, it when wanes, you say... And just like vaccine, the, the natural immunity wanes after time. All right. So you're telling me that uh, this government has apparently not allowed the vaccine, uh, not allowed the virus to course through society. You're telling me they've stopped that? <laughs> not as well as perhaps they should have done. Well, why are we not all sort of in hospital then? Because, as Chris Whitty said, you're not going to end up infecting everybody but you're going to end up infecting enough people. Yeah, but you can't keep going with the same argument. You know, you can't keep saying that people are going to get infected. Then people do get infected. Then hospitals don't get overwhelmed. You can't keep saying hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. You know, if you're if you're telling me the infections are going up and yet hospitalizations are not rising at the same levels as they were, and certainly deaths are not rising at the same levels as January because they're absolutely a, a fraction of that, aren't they? There were a 1,000 people a day dying in January, right? Yeah. Now we're down to somewhere between 100 and 200. So that's a very clear indication to me that people are not dying in the same numbers. Correct. So but, therefore, if you still, but if you still admit people into hospital with a virus that other people can pick up, you've got a problem. Well, yeah, but you've got a problem that the hospital... But you've got a problem, surely, that the hospital is qualified to deal with, and that's why it's called a hospital. 
Uh, well, the hospitals run at maximum capacity or were doing no, before they don't. this. More or less. No, they were. No, they um, were. Rubbish. I mean, there are hardly any uh, problems in an awful lot of the hospitals of this country, right? You can tell me, I'm sure, that every hospital is full of COVID patients. I don't think you can. No, 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 no. And I would never say that. I've never said that. What I mean is, two years ago, hospitals were running at near capacity because there is that demand for the health service. Well, because people get sick. The health service yeah. gets £150 billion a year, wastes an awful lot of it on organisations like the NHS Confederation. Let's get back to my original argument, which is why can't we modernise it and make it more efficient? <laughs> You're asking me, a research scientist, about the management of the NHS. Now, come on, Mike. This is... This is well, uh, you know more about the, the NHS than I do. All I'm saying what, what? is is that it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous for you to sit there. It's ridiculous for you to sit there and make the same arguments you made this time last year when everything's different. They're not the same arguments. Sounds like they're them. not the I same. I remember arguments. the arguments of last year. They were let's so make sure I. we protect the NHS. Let's make sure we don't overwhelm the hospitals. Let's make sure what the, yeah, the hospitals. Yeah, I remember are... the arguments this time last year yeah. that another wave wasn't going to happen, and it did. Yeah, uh, and uh, it that was in happen, no, that think. was in September actually. Oh, well, September, October. Because that was what the because there. that was what the data was suggesting. No, actually, yes, it was. It was, it was well, actually. Well, okay, so the data is suggesting something different now, obviously. So the data could everything... be wrong, in other words. So maybe we shouldn't be worrying about what the data tells us. Well, the data could be wrong and it could be even worse then. Well, it could be. I mean, you know, Sajid so, Javid seems to think 100,000 people could be admitted to hospital every day. Yeah. Well, that's I, not going to happen, I, is it? I'm not a modeler. I don't know why he said that. Neither do I. So what's the truth? Now's your the chance. truth is that we have a circulating virus which will put pressure on the NHS. Uh -huh. Whether that pressure is enough to break it or not, I don't know. Well, you're it isn't, is it? I'll make you a bet. Now, right now, or, you're £50 against mine to our favourite charity. It will not break the NHS. Trust me. Uh, well, <laughs> nice try. But uh, uh, the government will and should step in before that happens. Well, it won't break the NHS. Well, you what, just what, asked what, the question, will it break the NHS? The answer is, no, it won't. Fine. Good. So we can end on an agreement then. We can end on an agreement. Excellent. For once, Mike. Good to see you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Dr. Simon Clark, Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology. You heard it from him. It won't break the NHS. <laughs> I hope he's not wrong. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.